Okay, so this morning we're, we're going to continue our look at the Swiss reformer, Heinrich Bullinger. Uh, if you were with us last week, you may remember that we began just by looking kind of at an overview of his life. Um, and this morning we're going to get into more specifically about what he believed, his theological convictions, and how those developed. Um, as I mentioned last week, it was evident from a very early age that Bullinger had this very keen academic mind that he loved to give himself to study. Um, however, like is the case with some, it, it wasn't just this intellectual pursuit for Bullinger. He wasn't looking just to fill his mind with theological thoughts. But as he studied, he gave himself to meditation upon the things that he was learning. And what that ended up doing was producing many writings, right? So he's, he's reading the Bible, as we talked about last week. He's reading the church fathers and their view of the scriptures. He's looking at Luther's writings as those are just kind of coming hot off the press, so to speak, along with Philip Melanchthon and Melanchthon taking Luther's theology and kind of putting it in a systematic form, which was really helpful, helpful for Bullinger. And as he, as he gives himself to this study, his pen becomes the outlet for his mind and his heart. And he starts writing a lot. So at the end of his life, he ends up writing 124 books, along with thousands of tracts and letters, just personal correspondence and thoughts on this subject and that subject. But 124 24 books, that, that, that's a lot of books. <laughs> To be, uh, to be writing. And I just want to highlight what were some of the more popular writings that he was involved with. Uh, as I mentioned last week, he was a co-author of the first Helvetic conve- uh, confession. Uh, Helvetics is simply the Latin term for Swiss. So the first Swiss confession. And that was signed in 1536. Uh, This document really was the first creedal standard among the Swiss Reformed churches. And so he helped to co-author that. It had 27 articles. Um, So they're thinking about things. They're wrestling with theological issues. They're saying, yes, this is right. Let's put this down as as a confession, right? Get these things down, what we believe, what we're learning, what we're standing for, what we're standing against. Um, And then he had another uh, writing that was extremely famous, and this was called The Decades. This was a compilation of 50 lengthy sermons uh, that dealt with the major tenets of the Christian doctrine. Uh, It included an exposition of the Ten Commandments, a commentary on the Apostles' Creed, and writings on the sacraments. Those were all big things that... Uh, Bullinger was thinking about during this time. And the first sermon in this volume dealt with the supremacy of God's word as the all-sufficient revelation for all people for their salvation and sanctification. And that that would have been very, um, again, controversial, that, that the word of God is supreme. It trumps everything. It trumps human tradition, all things. If they are true, they must flow out of the word of God. And that is the one standard that is above everything else. Well, in addition to that, Bullinger also wrote a commentary on every book of the New Testament. Except, anybody want to take a shot at it? Revelation. 
There you go. Okay. Revelation. And these commentaries that he wrote really were just an overflow of the exposition that he had done in the pulpit there in Zurich. As I mentioned last week, he was in that pulpit for 44 years, um, and he went through 21 out of the 27 New Testament books from uh, start to finish. So that's where these, uh, these writings kind of came out of. But out of all of his writings, the one that he's best known for is the second Helvetic Confession. He wrote that by himself. He didn't have anybody else uh, co-authoring that with him. It was written in 1561, so this is a little ways down the road. He's had a lot of time to begin thinking about things and giving greater thought um, to the tenets of the Reformation and the truth of Scripture. But even though he wrote it in 1561, it actually wasn't published until 15. 66. And just to kind of put this in, in a time frame for you, to think about when the Second Helvetic Confession came out, the Council of Trent, which was Rome's counter-Reformation, right? They're, they're seeing the things that are flowing out of the Reformation, and they're saying, we don't agree with these things that are coming out. And so the Council of Trent goes from 1545 until 1563. So the span of 18 years and they put together a lot of things during those times, and things were coming out as they were writing. And you'll see a lot of uh, what's in the Second Helvetic Conve uh, Confession as a direct attack against those things that you see showing up in the Council of Trent. So again, what, what's encouraging as you, as you think about the Reformers, I mean, these guys were just boldly standing in the face of great opposition at, with, with the threat of their lives. Uh, being taken from them if they didn't put their pens down and close their mouths. And these brothers stood firm upon the truth of God's word and would not be silenced. Now, that first Helvetic Confession, that was only accepted mainly in Switzerland, but the second Helvetic Confession found really wide approval amongst the Reformed churches, and particularly in Switzerland, in France, Scotland, Hungary, Poland, the Netherlands, and Germany. So it had a massive influence uh, over there. This document really summarizes Bullinger's theology. If you really want to know what, what did Bullinger believe, you can read the Second Helvetic Confession and you'll see what he believed. And that's what we're going to spend our time on this morning, is just looking at sections from that as we think about his theology. Let's just hear from him directly about what he penned in the Second Helvetic Confession and see what the things were that he believed. And as we look at this, again, we want to remember in its context, he's writing against the abuses and the things that he sees are being misinterpreted within the Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic Church. Okay, so we're going to spend some time looking at these. Dealing with the images of God, that was a very big issue within the Roman Catholic Church. Not only the images of God, uh, the Father, but images of Christ and images of saints or believers. So Bullinger had things to say about this. And again, I, I encourage you, I, it was a joy to be able to go through the Second Helvetic Confession this week and just like, amen, man, this brother was just writing these things down and getting his thoughts out. It's 30 chapters and... Just to kind of put that into comparison, the Second London Confession, which we hold to, is 32 chapters. Okay, but Bullinger's writing this all out by himself. 
right? He's just laying these things out. Somebody mentioned last week, I think it was Nancy Farrell, um, when we were looking at the 10 Theses of Burn, she said, did, did that have any scripture correlated with it? You didn't see anything specifically in those 10 Theses of Burn, but you'll see it differently here in the second Helvetic Confession where he's laying this out. So listen to what Bullinger says. And I love just how he thinks through these things, right? Since God as spirit is in essence invisible and immense, he cannot really be expressed by any art or image. For this reason, we have no fear pronouncing with scripture that images of God are mere lies. Therefore, we reject not only the idols of the Gentiles, but also the images of Christians. Wow. What a statement that is. We reject not only the idols of the Gentiles, but we reject also the images of Christians. Right? As they're seeking to, to do art and put these things together, Bullinger is saying these things are wrong. And that's why you see one of the things that happened within the Reformed churches as they go into these. They, they clear house. They're taking things down. They're, I mean, removing it and bringing it back to the simplicity of the word of God. That's the central point when you walk into a church. It ought to be, right? That ought to be the main thing that sticks out. About images of Christ. He says, although Christ assumed human nature, yet he did not on that account assume it in order to provide a model for carvers and painters. Isn't that great? He denied that his bodily presence would be profitable for the church and promised that he would be near us by his spirit forever. Remember Jesus there in John 16 says, it's beneficial for you, it's profitable for you that I go away and that the comforter would come. And then he says, who therefore would believe that a shadow or likeness of his body, that's Christ's body, would contribute any benefit to the pious, to the godly. Right? So just the simplicity of his thought and his statements as he lays these things out and shows how ridiculous these things truly are. How about images of saints, believers? He says, and since the blessed saints in heaven, while they lived here on earth, rejected all worship of themselves and condemned images, shall anyone find it likely that the heavenly saints and angels are pleased with their own images before which men kneel, uncover their heads, and bestow honor? Right? So here's, here's Bullinger just laying these things out in the second Helvetic Confession and just saying, this is wrong. We ought not to be doing these things. So you'll find in Bullinger, as you read through that second Helvetic Confession, he doesn't mince words. He just kind of lays things out and he reasons and he says, Let, let's think about this. Okay? Did, did the saints while they were here on earth receive worship? No. Then why in the world would we think that they would be pleased with people bowing before their images now? Well, Rome obviously didn't like that because they were making money off of these things and they are putting these things out and relics being sold. So again, Bullinger is driving things back to the simplicity of the faith. Bullinger says, we also assert that the blessed Bishop Epiphanius who was a bishop in Cyprus in the 4th century, that he did right when finding on the doors of a church a veil on which was painted a picture supposedly of Christ or some saint, he ripped it down and took it away because to see a picture of a man hanging in the church of Christ was contrary to the authority of Scripture. Again, Bullinger, just straightforward. On these things. So you can see how he felt about images and again why that would have been very controversial to those within 
the Roman Catholic Church uh, in these statements that he was, he was making. Now, again, remember how wide the Second Helvetic Confession went into all these other countries. So all these other churches are adopting these things. Okay, so you see the, the grip of Rome losing its strength as these solid confessions go out. That is the benefit of a good confession. It helps people to clearly think and articulate the truth of God's word, right? They, they function as a systematic theology. They tell us what we are to believe on these things in accordance with what the scriptures state. And Bullinger did a great service to the church of God in getting this, this out. Wherefore, going on with images of saints, wherefore he charged that from henceforth or from this point forward, no such veils which were contrary to our religion should be hung in the church of Christ and that rather such questionable things unworthy of the church of Christ and the faithful people should be removed. So again, there you had what Bullinger was doing as, as he went, if you remember when he was uh, preaching, he preached that first sermon back in his hometown in Bremgarten. After he preached, the people cleared the church out. They took down all the images, removed the altar, right? After that one sermon on worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so this is what was taking place as people were walking into churches. It wasn't looking like they remembered it looking like, right? All these things are being taken, taken down. He goes on to say, moreover, we approve of this opinion of St. Augustine concerning true religion, I love this simplicity of Augustine's thought here too. Listen to this. Let not the worship of the works of men be a religion for us. For the artists themselves who make such things are better, yet we ought not to worship them. You see the logic there? We're not supposed to worship the artist as an image bearer of God. So why are we worshiping what he's creating? Right? See the simplicity of thought that Bullinger is pulling from here with Augustine in thinking through these things. So that's, that's how Bullinger felt about images, right? So that would have been a great service to the church of God in simplifying uh, religion and getting the focus back on the primacy of the word of God. So let's look now at what he thought about sin, okay? He says, by sin, we understand that innate corruption of man, which has been derived or propagated in us all from our first parents, by which we, immersed in perverse desires and averse to all good, are inclined to all evil. Okay, So Bollinger was a firm believer in total depravity or radical depravity and would have been in agreement with Luther's writing on the bondage of the will. He goes on to say, full of all wickedness, distrust, contempt, and hatred of God, we are unable to do or even to think anything good of ourselves. Moreover, even as we grow older, so by wicked thoughts, words, and deeds committed against God's law, we bring forth corrupt fruit worthy of an evil tree. Right? So, Again, in this same section, he goes on to condemn all those who hold Pelagian's view that, you know, essentially Adam, uh, you know, made a bad choice on his own and, and we shouldn't follow Adam's bad choice, but his choice didn't really have any bearing. We kind of come into the world as a blank slate, so to speak, and have the ability to choose good or evil. 
And Bullinger is looking at that and saying, we totally condemn that. But also, you see within these statements, Rome, if you remember, was kind of holding on to what would be called a form of semi-Pelagianism. That, yes, Adam, Adam's uh, sin affected mankind, and, and we bear that as well. But there's still within us something that is able to respond and work with the grace of God as it comes to us in the gospel. And Bullinger was saying, absolutely not. And you see that as we go further here. He says, for this reason, by our own deserts, or what we deserve, being subject to the wrath of God, we are liable to just punishment so that all of us would have been cast away by God if Christ, the deliverer, had not brought us back. Amen. Going on of death, he, he kind of expands on this a little bit more. He says, by death, we understand not only bodily death, which all of us must once suffer on account of sins, but also eternal punishment due to our sins and corruption. For the apostle says, and this is where you kind of see this aspect of uh, how he viewed humanity, not as um, able to still kind of correspond with something to the grace of God, but utterly dead and in need of a resurrection. So he quotes Ephesians 2.1 and following here, he says, For the apostle says, We were dead through trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he goes on here and he quotes Romans 5.12. He says, Also, as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. And then he concludes this and says, We therefore acknowledge that there is original sin in all men. Okay, so he was, he's making, now, now we read these, you know, we sit here, you know, 450 years after or so from the time of the uh, publication of the second Helvetic Confession, and we've been recipients of great teaching through, since the time of the Reformation. So we can read through this and be like, yeah, that's what you should be believing, you know, Bollinger. But you got to remember what, what these guys are coming out of, right, during this time, to, to put these things down on paper for them, but was just as they're renewing their minds by the word of God and they're breaking away from Rome's tyranny over the scriptures especially, uh, these guys are able to start thinking deeply about what the word of God says and put this. Uh, the reason that we can look at passages like this and be like, amen, is because people have pointed those out to us as we've read through the word of God. We've had things like this that we've looked at and said, amen, that's good, I, I agree with that. Right? But these guys are putting it down for the first time as they're as they're thinking through it. Okay, let's look at some else. What do you think about free will? Okay, this is another uh, really helpful point um, that helps us to see that he didn't think that man has any freedom to do good in and of himself. Somebody want to read that for us? Amen. So that great statement there, right? Hence, our first birth from Adam contributes nothing to our salvation, right? There's nothing there that's going to help us, right? We don't have a little bit of freedom left that we can contribute with the grace of God as it comes to us. 
we have nothing. We, as he says here, it requires regeneration in order for us to be saved. And we would say amen to that. Okay, want to keep reading that, Mac? Amen. Right? So there, there you have the, a very clear statement there from Bullinger. Man has no free will for good. Right? No strength to perform what is good. The Lord says in the gospel, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the apostle Paul says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So again, here's, here's, here's a great picture uh, of what Nancy was asking about last week is, you know, how did the scriptures play into this? Were they just reading other guys' writings and saying, that sounds good and let me do this? You can see that these things that Bullinger is, is talking about are birthed out of his study of the word of God, right? He's looking at passages like this and, and he's coming up with the conclusions of those passages. He's interpreting them, he's exegeting them. And he's saying this is the natural result of what this passage is talking about. There's no way that man can have any type of free will when you go through passages like this. So Bullinger is, is laying this out extremely clearly and giving us a good insight. Now, as, as he goes further in this section on free will, he then talks about the free will within the regenerate, within the believer. And this is so good. I mean, here, I, I talked about last week how you know, you saw in Bullinger this, this great academic mind, this love of study, and this huge pastoral heart, right? Just his, his willingness to come alongside the believer, and you really see it here. As believers, as we fight against the sin that remains within us, man, there are days of just great discouragement, right? I mean, we're just looking at it and be like, seriously, I'm still... I still have thoughts like this. I still am saying things like this. I'm still doing things like this, right? It can be really discouraging. And so Bullinger, he, it seems like he has his mind set on that person of what, what about that believer? Does this mean that it's all done with now that Christ has uh, forgiven us of our sins, right? Is there, a, is there a war that's still taking place? And he says this, in the regenerate, a weakness remains, for, sin, for since sin dwells in us, and in the regenerate, the flesh struggles against the spirit till the end of our lives, so that they do not easily accomplish in all things what they had planned. Isn't that a great statement? So that they do not easily accomplish in all things what they had planned. Now, where did Bullinger get that? Was he just like... You know, just that sounds like a good thought that I that would have. Watch again; it's rooted in his study of the Word of God. These things are confirmed by the Apostle in Romans seven and Galatians five. Right. So again, as he gives himself to the study of Scripture, these are the things that are flowing out from it. So just that passage in Galatians five that he's referencing in verses sixteen and seventeen says, "But I say, walk by the Spirit." And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit 
are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Right? So that's why Bullinger was coming up with this, that we don't easily accomplish the things that we plan to do as, as believers. Right? It's a war to stay disciplined in the Christian life. And Bullinger is recognizing that as he studies out the word of God. He goes on to say here, Therefore, that free will is weak in us on account of the remnants of the old Adam and of innate human corruption remaining in us until the end of our lives. So again, the, the longevity of it, when is this war going to end? Right? You're thinking, maybe when I hit like this age, this will be over. <laughs> right? And Bollinger's just like, all the way to the end, until that last breath, you're going to be fighting and making war against your sin. And then it'll end when your life ends and the new life that you have in Christ will be consummated and brought into its fullness when he returns. Okay, so really, really helpful stuff there from Bullinger on that. Um, he, he's got a lot on election here. I just kind of plucked out one uh, statement that he made here just to help us see his belief in unconditional election He says, from eternity, God has freely and of his mere grace without any respect to men, right? So again, that's just showing the the widespread. This is completely of God, completely of his own accord. He's predestinated or elected the saints whom he wills, whom he wills to save in Christ. According to the saying of the apostle, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Um, so again, here's Bollinger studying Ephesians 1. He's looking at this passage and he says, this is the logical conclusion of that. And he spills it forth onto the second Helvetic confession. What about repentance and faith? And again, when you remember, you know, kind of what's going on here with, with repentance and the, the penance, the system of penance and how that's set up within the Roman Catholic Church, you go to the priest you say confession. Those of us that have been in the Roman Catholic Church, you may remember that. You go to the priest, do your confession. He sends you home with a rosary, and you're doing all these different prayers, right, you know, during that, during that time. Now, watch how Bullinger, you get a good glimpse here. I've got quite a bit on his section of repentance and faith. First and foremost, watch what he says. Now, we expressly say that repentance is a sheer gift of God and not a work of our strength. Amen. Right? Isn't that a a great, great statement? It's not something that you work up within yourself. Again, it helps us to see his understanding of salvation. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. But if that is going to happen, God must give it. Right? It's not something we can work up within ourselves. And again, what does Bullinger show us here? He roots it, right? He makes that statement. We express that repentance is a sheer gift of God and not a work of our strength. Did he come up with that on his own? No. He says, for, here's my ground for that statement, the apostle commands a faithful minister diligently to instruct those who oppose the truth if God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth. It's one of my favorite passages when I think about evangelism. I'm going to call this person to repent and believe the gospel, but I understand that within that person, they don't have the ability nor the desire to do that, 
It must come as a gift from God. And how it comes is through the proclamation of the gospel. So Ron, stick to the gospel. Right? Don't get sidetracked. That's where the power lies. That, that passage is really helpful in that regard. He says this. Now, this is where he takes just a, a direct shot at the Roman Catholic system of penance. He says, we believe that this sincere confession, which is made to God alone. Whoa. Wait a minute. What about the priest? You got you to gotta make that to the priest. Bullinger, either privately between God and the sinner, that's revolutionary, or publicly in the church where the general confessions of sin is said, is sufficient. And that in order to obtain forgiveness of sins, it's not necessary for anyone to confess his sins to a priest, murmuring them in his ears, that in turn he might receive absolution from the priest with his laying on of hands because, here's why, there's neither commandment nor an example of this in holy scriptures. So, again, here's Bullinger. I'm studying the word, and I'm seeing your system and how you have that set up, and I'm finding no example of that in the word of God. And he's just, he's, he's just cutting tradition out. He's just saying, that's worthless. That's meaningless. And he goes on and he says, David testifies and said, I acknowledged my sin to thee and did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Then thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32, 5. And then Bullinger says, And the Lord who taught us to pray and at the same time to confess our sin said, Pray then like this, Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And then watch what he says as he goes into the end of this treatise on repentance and faith. He says, we especially condemn the lucrative doctrine of the Pope concerning penance and against his simony and his simonical indulgences. We avail ourselves of Peter's judgment concerning Simon, your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither pot part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Wow. And this thing's going out. <laughs> you know, this thing is spreading from, from one country to the next and it's getting out. And so there wasn't any ambiguity. Bullinger's like, I want you to know how I feel about that system that's set up. We condemn it. And he calls it for what it is, that lucrative doctrine. Right? That doctrine that's making you money. It's bringing in money. So, Bollinger, man, just standing firm upon the truth of God's word. All right, any, any thoughts? We've got some more here. So, but what do you guys think about that so far? Are you anxious to go back and read the whole second Helvetic Confession? I hope you are. It's really encouraging and very uh, devotional. You find your heart soaring in, in praise to God. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah, re you know, really back at this time, these guys are reaching back into the church fathers if they can get their hands on them 
and these, and these you know, uh, uh, councils and everything like that where they can try to get some understanding. But, but even then, even within you know, those councils at those times, those things are written, they're, they're addressing certain issues, but they're not addressing all issues, right? As issues arise, more things are coming out. So you can look back at those confessions, just like, you know, you walk into a Catholic church and you read the Apostles' Creed and, you know, they would say amen to that and you would say amen to that. But developments haven't come further. Well, let's see, what, what do you mean by that, right? What do we mean about the death of Christ and who that was for and the sufficiency of it? And the working out of those things. So absolutely, you know, these guys are working off those things, but they're having to think through them in their own contemporary setting. And they don't have the categories at that time. So the Spirit of God is just giving them wisdom as they open the Word of God and they get all these things down. And now we have the benefit of going back and, and looking at the gifts that Christ has given to his church as teachers. And we have the benefit of coming alongside them and saying amen, you know, to these, to these things. So... Okay, of justification, obviously, this would have been, again, uh, a very pointed attack here. So if you go back and read the Council of Trent, there's a lot of things in there that may bore you as you, as you read through that. But if you look in particular at session six in the Council of Trent, that it says on justification, and they come up with their, what they believe justification is. And they believed that it was a process, right? That it started at the sacrament of baptism and then the grace of God is added to that person throughout their lives. And then the actual declaration of being justified in the sight of God could not be made by God until the last day, right? Now, the reformers are looking at the scriptures and they're, and they're looking at this and, and saying there seems to be statements. Like, for example, the parable that Jesus told, this man, this man went down to his house justified rather than, rather than the other. He's still living. He doesn't have to wait until the last day to find out. So they're, they're working through passages like this. But he says, Bullinger says this, solely, solely, that's, that's big, right? Alone, right? Solely on account of Christ's sufferings and resurrection is God propitious, is he merciful, with respect to our sins and does not impute them to us, but imputes Christ's righteousness to us as our own. That was massive. That's a massive statement right there. So that we are not only cleansed and purged from sins or are holy, but also granted the righteousness of Christ and so absolved from sin, death, and condemnation are at last righteous and heirs of eternal life. Properly speaking, therefore, God alone justifies us and justifies us only. Hallelujah. Man, these are, this is gold that Bollinger is bringing out here. Only on account of Christ, not imputing sins to us, but imputing his righteousness to us. So double imputation you have there, right? Our sins go to Christ. Christ's righteousness comes to us. You know, this isn't, he doesn't have all these documents to work off of to work through these texts. So again, we can, we can read these and just be like, well, amen, that's what you should be believing. That's a correct interpretation of scripture. But we have them because men like this studied. Christ gave gifts to his church and these teachers that we, that we have here. So again, that would have been, man, if, if you're sitting there as a Roman Catholic leader and you read that, that, man, your blood is boiling when you read statements like that. 
He says, but because we receive this justification, not through any works, but through faith in the mercy of God and in Christ, we therefore teach and believe with the apostle that sinful man is justified by faith alone in Christ, not by the law or any works. For, where am I getting this from? For, the apostle says, we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. Now, he doesn't stop here, right? Because you've heard, you know, we, we think that the issue with Paul and James, like James coming along saying, you're not, you're not justified by faith alone. We're like, is that, is, that a, is that a modern thought here, right? Well, no. Watch what he says. Wherefore, in this matter, we're not speaking of a fictitious, empty, lazy, and dead faith but of a living, quickening faith. It is and is called a living faith because it apprehends Christ who is life and makes alive and shows that it is alive by living works, right? So here's the, here's the evidence. And so James does not contradict anything in this doctrine of ours. For he speaks, speaking, he's talking about James here, for he, that is James, speaks of an empty dead faith of which some boasted, but who did not have Christ living in them by faith. He cross-references James 2.14 through following, which he goes up to verse 26. So this is Bullinger commenting on this. says, James said that works justify, yet without contradicting the apostle, otherwise he would have to be rejected, but showing that Abraham proved his living and justifying faith by works. This all the pious do, but they trust in Christ alone and not in their own works. Man, golden statements here that, that Bullinger is making and showing the distinction. And he says, this all the pious do, right? If you're truly regenerated, if you've truly been saved by faith alone in Christ alone, it will manifest itself in how you live. Okay? So, good stuff. All right, the Lord's Supper. So, Bullinger... Uh, this, this was obviously a, a very big issue. I, I mentioned this last week that Bullinger got together with Calvin and some others to talk about the issue of the Lord's Supper. They were obviously, and you'll see this in, in the statements, this, this is just a, a great statement that he has here, um, but he's denying transubstantiation, the Roman Catholic view, that the bread and the wine literally become, physically become the body and blood of Christ. But you're also seeing him reject Luther's view here of consubstantiation, that, that the presence of Christ is, is with and in and under the bread. And how all that works, I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if Luther was able to fully think through all the implications of that. But he also rejects Zwingli's view. So he's rejecting Roman Catholic teaching, he's rejecting Luther's view, and he's rejecting Zwingli's view, which, which Zwingli's view, if you remember from what Desmond taught, was that it's a mere memorial, that, that Christ isn't really present here, it's just a remembrance of what he, has, what he has done. So listen to what Bullinger says as he puts all this together. He says, we do not, therefore, so join the body of the Lord and his blood with the bread and wine as to say that the bread itself is the body of Christ except in a sacramental way. Okay, that's a denial of transubstantiation, the Roman Catholic view. Now here comes the Lutheran view. Or that the body of Christ is hidden corporeally or physically under the bread. 
so that it ought to be worshipped under the form of bread. Or yet that whoever receives the sign receives also the thing itself. The body of Christ is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and therefore our hearts are to be lifted up on high and not, be, and not to be fixed on the bread, neither is the Lord to be worshipped in the bread. And then here's, here's where he distances himself from Zwingli. Yet the Lord is not absent from his church when she celebrates the supper, right? So there's a real presence of Christ, but it's not a physical presence. And so you can see where, where he and Calvin would be, you know, together on this. And actually, when, when you read through, if you give some time to Bullinger's work, you'll see that a lot of what sh- shows up in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, he borrows from Bullinger. So he says, and this is the analogy that he uses, which he's trying to think through, okay, how is that, right? We still have trouble trying to define exactly how that is. How is Christ really present here with us, right? And so here's here's Bullinger's analogy. The sun, which is absent from us in the heavens, is notwithstanding effectually present among us, right? So even though it's there, we still feel the effects. It's really present here with us. So he's trying to work through that. How much more is the son of righteousness, Christ, although in his body he is absent from us in heaven, present with us, not corporally, physically, but spiritually, by his vivifying or life-giving operation, and as he himself explained at his last supper, that he would be present with us. Oh man, so it's just great to hear these guys thinking through this, and okay, I deny that because that's not in scripture, and I deny this because that's not in Scripture. I don't know how all this works, but let me try to figure it out and put it into a, a statement here uh, for you guys. So you can see Bullinger working through that and where he and Calvin uh, would be locking arms regarding their view of the supper. Uh, Will's going to teach on Calvin next week. Okay, he, he finishes and says... Whence or therefore it follows that we do not have the supper without Christ, right? So it's not that Christ is, it's not a mere memorial, right? It's not just like, we're just going to remember Christ, but he's not here. He's saying, no, we do, we do not have the supper without Christ. And yet at the same time, have an unbloody, right? So it's not a real sacrifice of Christ as Rome was teaching, and mystical supper as it was universally called by antiquity, Okay. Again, these guys were not uh, the first ones to be thinking about the Lord's Supper. This has been discussed all throughout church history as you go back and you, and you look through that. Okay, so that puts us kind of at the end here. So um, just a few thoughts in, in closing. What we've looked at the last four weeks with Zwingli and Bullinger is really how God was using these servants uh, just really in a mighty way in bringing about reform in Switzerland and mainly from their ministry in Zurich. That was kind of the the hub and then it would spread itself out. But Switzerland, uh, or Zurich rather, uh, would not be the most popular city during the time of the Reformation. That privilege would go to Geneva, uh, which is the city where the great reformer John Calvin ministered. Um, in a sense, what you see here is, is Bullinger kind of takes the torch from Zwingli 
right? As, as Zwingli's working mightily within the Reformation within Switzerland, kind of takes that torch from Zwingli, does a mighty work for the Lord, and then kind of hands it off to Calvin. And Calvin continues that work and expounds on it in a greater way. But as I said, Calvin and his institutes, a lot of it is a looking back at what Bullinger had, had penned down. So again, you see how these brothers built off of one another, how they were learning from one another as this uh, Reformation uh, went on and, and would continue to spread. So Calvin will be looked at here by Will, uh, the next two uh, sessions here, Lord willing, the next two Sundays. So I hope you guys are, are ready, ready for that. So any, any closing thoughts here before we, uh, before we pray? Yeah, that, that's right. That's right. And, and what they and Calvin kind of ex, expounded on this more, but he would talk about, you know, the Lord's Supper is never to be taken apart from the word of God. Right. So the, the, the Lord's Supper is kind of uh, an appendix on the word of God. Right. So as the word of God is preached and Christ is truly preached in the word. So he is present with us in the supper as well. So, yeah, in, in that sense, you, you have him uh, especially coming to us through those means of grace of the preached word, the Lord's Supper, uh, baptism, and, and so on. So, amen. Good, good point. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, exactly. And, you know, I want, I want to be gracious to these brothers as they're thinking through it because, you know, they're, they're coming out of this system where this is, you must believe, this is how it is, you must believe this, and they're wrestling through it. And, but, yeah, I agree with you, and how thankful we should be that uh, we can look back at these men that God has used and, and look at Scripture and how they understood it and put it together and say, yeah, this is, this is you know, what we believe is true on the basis of our, of our study. So, uh, yeah. I hope Bullinger uh, for you has, has uh, just awakened in you a desire to learn more about these reformers that, that God has used. He was a guy that, for me, I knew very little about as I studied him, other than his connection with Zwingli and that he took over in Zurich. But beyond that, um, I had never read through the second Helvetic Confession, and I didn't read through all of it, by the way. Um, but I read through a large section of it. It was such a blessing to go through that and see the development of thought uh, during that time. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, God has given many gifts to his church and teachers, and we can benefit from these, these brothers who have gone before us. So well, let me pray for us, and then we'll conclude here. Father, how grateful we are as, as we've gone through this study, again, on uh, a brother, a servant that you've used, Heinrich Bullinger, and Lord how grateful we are that as he gave himself to the study of your word and the study of other teachers within the church who were looking at your word, that you gave him the grace uh, to think through those and put those down in the second Helvetic confession. And, and from that, other confessions springing forth to solidify uh, what it is that we believe on certain issues. And uh, Father, we know that in our own day, there is the need for this ongoing study and learning and growth and defending the faith. 
as different attacks come against the truth, uh, help us to look back at what these brothers wrote and uh, to learn from them um, uh, these ancient truths uh, that are present, Lord. Uh, we're grateful for them and pray that we would uh, benefit, for them, benefit from them. And truly, we thank you uh, for gifts that you have given to the church in teachers. Um, uh, we praise you and are, are grateful for that. We're, we're glad beneficiaries of these things. And so we thank you for that, Father. Bless our time now as we go into the service, Lord. Give us uh, just a readiness to hear the word of God, to be attentive and diligent in listening uh, to your word. And uh, Lord, what a, what a blessing that we get to take the supper together this morning. And may these truths that we've talked about rivet our hearts as we do. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.